Good morning. It is a great joy and uh, excitement for me to be here with you. Y'all have such a sweet, special fellowship. And uh, I ask you right off to pray for my voice. My voice has not been strong ever since um, I went through treatments about nine years ago now. But um, allergies kind of irritate it. So I just pray it's not a distraction to you hearing um, what I hope God says through me. Um, I want to begin by asking you to think back about the video you just saw. I think that's a powerful wake-up call for us to begin with. You know, the question that they ask, what should we do? You know, what should we do? Um, as we approach the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, I know we can have a view that, well, so what? It's a piece of old history about a bunch of dead men in Europe. What does that have to do with me 500 years later in America? And it is real easy to have that thought. And obviously what's important is not the history, the facts of the history, but it's the theology and it's the gospel and it's the purposes behind that history that God was working through. So to begin with, and um, I don't know if we have our slides up, but um, we'll start with that and I'll, I'll try to signal when we can change. But um, did you notice in the video, James Montgomery Boyce said that a Christian who forgets his theology is sinning? Now, do we really believe that? Do we believe if we forget our theology, we're in sin? And he talked about reclaiming or recovering the historic gospel. What is that? What is the historic faith? How did we lose it? Um, I'll say it this way. I think it boils down to this. I wrote it down. I want to read it to you. As churches and individuals, can we define and articulate our theology and our gospel in a way that is pure and consistent for all men in all churches in all nations for all time since Christ came? Can we do that? Can we as Grace Fellowship do that? Can we as Redeemer do that? Can we as Aaron Acker do that? Can we do it as individuals? So to begin with, let's think about history. What do you think, next slide, is the most important events that have changed the world since Christ has come? You know, we could all debate the list. Everybody's got opinions. You know, some of you might think that uh, when Alabama became a state was one, but, uh, or, well, we won't go the football route. But anyway, um, but I've listed Ten that I came up with in reverse order. So let's look at the first five. Um, the fall of the Berlin Wall. The invention of the Internet and World Wide Web. That's a recent thing, but has that changed the world or what? The life of Muhammad and Islam. I think that's pretty important. 1.3 billion people today in the fastest growing religion on earth. World War II. The Great War, the war to end all wars? No. World War II. World War I and World War II. Um, World War II, 50 to 85 million people dead. And then the next five, the American Revolution and the birth of the United States. I know that may seem prejudiced, but no country on earth has impacted history like America. Fourth, the Roman Empire and the Pax Romana, or the Peace of Rome. The peace of Rome from the, in the first two centuries changed the world. The roads, architecture, art, culture, unbelievable. Number three, the Renaissance, which means rebirth, is basically defined as from 14th to 17th centuries, cultural bridge between dark ages and modern world. Number two, I think the number two most important event since Christ was the invention of the printing press. We have no idea how hard it was to have a book before the printing press. Books were for the very wealthy. 
They took years to make a book, and they were worth hundreds of annual wages of people. Books were very rare. And, of course, that meant what? The Bible was very rare. So nothing changed the world quite like the invention of the printing press. And then, number one, I think that the most important event since Christ came is the Protestant Reformation. It's usually acknowledged from 1517 to 1648, but it stands as the most far-reaching, world-changing display of God's grace since Christ came. I'll read you a quote from a historian named Philip Schaff. It says, The Reformation of the 16th century is, next to the introduction of Christianity, the greatest event in history. It marks the end of the Middle Ages and the beginning of modern times. Starting from religion, it gave, directly or indirectly, a mighty impulse to every forward movement and made Protestantism the chief propelling force in the history of modern civilization. Not only is it the most important event since Christ, but it gives meaning to the second and third, the print and press and the Renaissance, because it shaped those. Now, some bad things came out of the Renaissance, like humanism, but good things came out of it. Good thinking beyond the tradition that had been imposed on the hearts and minds of men. And, of course, the most important reason the printing press was developed, just like the most important reason the Pax Romana came was to build the roads that the gospel could go forth. The most important reason the printing press was developed was that the Bible could go forth, that the Bible could be made available to the people and not just to the rich and not just to the church and the priest. So, again, you may ask, why is the Reformation so important? And Well, last of all, let me not skip this. The next one, what is the most important event in all of history? Of course, the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the founding of His church. He split history. History is His story. His life changed every life that came before Him and every life that came behind Him. And so, without Him, there is no history. Life has no meaning. And so we all agree that's certainly the most important event. But why is the Reformation so important, especially to the American church today? Well, let's be sure first what the Reformation is. Um, the next slide. Protestant Reformation, again, acknowledged from when Martin Luther nailed the theses up in 1517 to the end of 30 years' war, 1648. But basically, the 1500s and the 1600s. Um, as Phil said, Martin Luther is seen as the beginning of it. Um, and I would call him the heart or the passion of the uh, Protestant Reformation. When he nailed the 95 Theses up on the church, um, the All Saints Church at Wittenberg, Germany, October 31st, 1517. October 31st was a special holiday for the Roman church then. It was called All Saints Eve or All Hallows Eve. So today we have Halloween, October 31st, but I encourage you as good Protestants to remember October 31st is Reformation Day, not Halloween. So, um, but prior to Martin Luther, there were other reformers. Um, the uh, next slide talks about the radical reformers. Just two examples, John Wycliffe in England, who translated the Latin Vulgate uh, into Middle English in 1382, is one of the first Bibles in a language other than Latin or other than Greek or Hebrew. Um, and he started the Lollard movement. Another example was John Huss in Czechoslovakia in the early 1400s. Interesting tidbit of trivia about John Huss. Um, his name in Czech, Huss, means goose. 
And, of course, he was persecuted by the Roman church and eventually was put to death for heresy and his ashes thrown in the Rhine River. But just before he was burned, he wrote this, You may roast this goose, but a hundred years from now a swan will arise whose singing you will not be able to silence. That was 1415. 1517, 102 years later, what? Martin Luther became that swan whom the world did not silence. And so the next group of reformers would be the magisterial reformers. Um, what was the difference between the other attempts to reform the church and what started in the 1500s? Twofold, mainly, was Martin Luther was joined by many others. There were many others. John Calvin, William Farrell, Theodore Beza, Ulrich Zwingli in France and Switzerland, and then you had John Knox in Scotland. The previous reformers, the, that, that, the second point is the previous reformers were considered radical because they weren't associated with any authority, any governmental authority. They felt the government had nothing to do with the church and refused to interact whatsoever. The later reformers did involve themselves with the authorities, and they connected themselves with certain governmental authorities, princes or magistrates, who ended up protecting them when the Roman church tried to kill them because the Pope tried to destroy every one of them and their teaching, and so they enjoyed the benefit of protection from the magistrates that they submitted to. But enough of those details because I don't want this to be just a history lesson. Um, this sacred desk and this sacred time demands that we look to the Word of God. Um, but as we begin to move that way, I want you to think about this. What was the Reformation about? And by the way, words mean things differently over hundreds of years. Um, like charity is a totally different meaning than it used to be to us now. Um, so when we hear the word Reformation, I do think Phil alluded to something that's very good, and I just thought about it sitting there. Maybe a better word in our terminology today would be the recovery. Because we think of different things when we hear the word Reformation. But the next slide talks about that two pivotal issues founded the Reformation. The first was the material cause, which was, and all these words were Latin, and it doesn't matter about the Latin, but it was sola fide, which means faith alone. So they felt faith alone was the sole means of justification. As Phil read to open Romans 1.16, we are justified by faith, which was in Habakkuk and in Romans, that faith alone is the means through which we are justified. The formal cause was sola scriptura, scripture alone. That scripture alone was the sole authority for the church and for the believer and was the sole authority that could bind your conscience. But next slide talks about that they had three other solas they added to it that you're all familiar with, the five foundational pillars of Protestantism. And I believe the five foundational pillars of church theology today are the five solas. Sola is Latin for alone. You know that. But it's so critical that we emphasize that because, you know, <clears throat> there are a lot of people. There are a lot of people in the Roman church then and now that would agree with they believe in Scripture. They believe in grace. They believe in faith. They believe in Christ. They believe in God's glory. But when you add alone, you change everything. Because it's grace alone, no works. It's faith alone, no priest. You know, it's Christ alone, no church. It's, it, it makes a big difference. The next slide is, well, well, let me just say this before I pass on that. I think one of the best personal testimonies we can have as an individual or a church 
is based on those five solas. Only true biblical Christians can say this, that we believe based on Scripture alone as the sole authority, that by grace alone as the sole means, through faith alone as the sole method, in Christ alone as the sole mediator, we are justified, sanctified, and one day will be glorified for God's glory alone as the sole purpose and passion of everything. Next slide talks about the motto um, of, of this slide. talks about the motto of the Reformation, which came out of Geneva, which I was blessed to be able to go, um, where the pastor to the pastors, the master theologian, I believe, John Calvin, labored and trained so many who during the time of the Reformation then went back to their own countries, went around the world, with a Bible-based theology. The motto in Geneva was this Latin phrase, post tenebras lux, which means from darkness, light. We would say it, light from darkness, which is where I got the title. Geneva even printed this um, on their coins up until the mid-1800s. But what does that mean, light from darkness? What were the reformers saying about the biblical principles they were claiming? Certainly the church and its members had been overtaken by darkness. So what kind of light were they speaking of and seeking to recover the pure gospel? The light they spoke of really relates to the highest and most foundational of all theology, and that's theology proper. What is theology proper? The study of God himself. And that means the nature, the essence of who God is. So the reformers like Calvin were devoted to a God and a gospel. They felt best defined as being light from darkness. They were saying something about the nature of God and about the nature of his gospel. And where better to turn in the scriptures than the writings of John. You know, the Gospels, the synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they tell us what God did. Where John's Gospel focuses more on who God was, the nature and essence of God in the flesh, God the Son, Jesus Christ. John's Gospel gives us the seven great I Am statements. John also uses the greatest symbols, I believe, in all of Scripture for God to help us understand as Andrew prayed, the incomprehensible glory and nature of God. John opens his gospel, chapter 1, telling us that God is what? The Word. John 4.24 tells us, next slide, yeah. John 4.24 tells us God is spirit. And then 1 John 4.8 tells us that God is love. So God is the Word, God is love, God is spirit. But I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to the first letter that John wrote after his gospel. 1 John, where in the very beginning of 1 John, he summarizes all of his personal experiences he had with this Messiah, this sole mediator, Jesus Christ, whom he calls the Word of Life. So read with me as we go through 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 1, which is on the screen too. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son Jesus Christ. These things we write so our joy may be made complete. Verse 5, This is the message we have heard from Him and announced to you that God is light 
And in Him there is no darkness at all. So, what is the summary message about this Word of Life? After three years of intimate fellowship with Jesus Christ, how did John summarize the message that he and the other disciples received and heard from Jesus Christ? This disciple whom Jesus loved probably had enjoyed the most intimate relationship with Christ of all the disciples. How does he sum it up? He says, this word of life was from the beginning. They heard it with their ears and their hearts. They saw it with their eyes and their minds. They touched it with their hands and their lives. And it brought them eternal life, fellowship with the Father and the Son, and great joy. So how does he sum all that up? This message he's compelled to announce to others. He's compelled to announce to us so that we too might join in that eternal life, that fellowship, that joy with God the Father and God the Son. This is the message we have heard from Him and announced to you that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. I think that's a powerful statement like all of the Word of God, but what a beautiful, powerful statement of the import of the nature of God as light. God is light. Not God is a light. Not God is the light. But God is light. God is essential light. That's His nature. And that's the nature of His message, the gospel, the pure gospel. And notice that God has had John now after his first three symbols in his gospel. Remember the Word, the Spirit, or Spirit and love. Now he switches to a symbol that is tangible, is palpable, is something real in our creation that we have an image of. You know, if we talk about God is love, we can kind of understand that in concept because we think, well, I know what it's like to love. I know what it's like to be loved. So I think of God as the ultimate perfection of love. We talk about God as spirit. We think, well, I don't understand that, but I know God is not material. So God is spirit. He's immaterial. We talk about God as the word. It's a very difficult concept to grasp, really, that meaning of that word logos in John 1. But the concept of a word, an idea, um, of who God is, His meaning, and the message He has brought to us, Word made flesh, we can think of that. But when we come to thinking of God as light, we have a, a new parallelism. We have a new analogy. It's something that we, we all know about, and that's light. We all see it. If we see, we see light. We experience it. And even if we don't see, we feel light. Especially on a day like today, you go outside, you feel the light of the sun. You feel it. There is no darkness in God because God is light. This concept and symbol, although like the others, not a perfect, there is no perfect symbol for the incomprehensible God. But it is a powerful symbol. And it's so powerful. I wish I had time to really focus on all that means. You know, that's what people say when they don't really have the ability to do it. Is they say, I wish I had time to tell you about all that. But that's, it's usually when they don't have it. And that's me. I don't have the ability to do it. But I'm going to say, I, wish, I don't have the time. But um, so just quickly consider some of the times God uses light as a symbol in the Old Testament. How often does this Shekinah or dwelling glory show up as a is so powerful that he cloaks it with a cloud in the wilderness on Sinai or in the temple? And he told Moses, you cannot see my face. And, and I've got a whole list of scriptures. I don't even know if you can see them. We may not cover all of them, but I just, I can't get over the concept of God as light is so powerful and prevalent. God told Moses, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Psalm 27.1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. 
Psalm 36, 9, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. And notice the Hebrew parallelism there of light and life. Light and life are tied together throughout the scripture. Psalm 104, 1 and 2, you are cloaked, clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a cloak. In Ezekiel, the vision the prophet saw, he said there was a radiance around him. And so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So clearly this light of God is related to his glory. And then listen to these New Testament passages. As I've already referred to, John 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 4 says, In Him was life, and that life, the life, was what? The light of men. So light and life tied together again. Don't miss that. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And notice again, the focus is on the relationship between light and life. John 3, 19. This is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. John 8, 12. You know that I am. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Light and life. John 12, 46. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. 1 Timothy 6, 15. He who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light. Now notice how this light of God is given to and for us. So we moved from light coming from God, but now light coming to us and for us as his children. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God said, Light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Ephesians 5, 8, For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Philippians 2, 15, Prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. 1 Thessalonians 5, 5, For you are all sons of light and sons of day. 1 Peter 2, 9, So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And notice, that this light of God is conveyed to us how? By the gospel, the gospel of God. 2 Timothy 1.10 says that our Savior Jesus Christ brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Colossians 1.13, He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. What kind of kingdom is it? A kingdom of light. So therefore, kind of summarizing, this light of God goes forth from him to us. The light of God is also the life of God. And this light of God is conveyed through his pure gospel. Think about this. If you flip to the very first page of scripture, what is the very first thing God ever said that we have recorded? Let there be light. So you think light's kind of important? I mean, I believe that everything we see in physical creation has foundation for what we will see in the life to come. Why? Because we know that in reality, the new Jerusalem and the new heavens and new earth are a recreation. So we miss if, if we fail to see God in even this fallen world around us, we fail to miss some of His revelation to us. Obviously, this is the perfect revelation, but we can see and understand things from the natural revelation we have. Genesis 1, 3 says, God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, 
and God separated the light from the darkness. So, what are some things we can consider from physical light? Well, the next slide talks about the nature of physical light. These are just some things. I don't pretend to understand all this, but just to give us a concept of thinking about light. Science attempts to explain it by four theories. The particle theory, wave theory, electromagnetic theory, and the quantum theory. Second point about light is it's unique in all of creation that it exists and manifests itself both as a particle of matter and as a wave of energy. It's totally unique. And it's so important that light is the tie. We talk about all of the physical creation is matter and energy. The tie between the two is light. In fact, not to get technical, but you know the formula, E equals MC squared, that the speed of light is the relationship between energy and matter. All light, number three, is pure. Think about this. It doesn't matter how dim light is. It doesn't matter what color it is. It doesn't matter what spectrum it is. There's no such thing as dirty light. It's pure, right? It may be weak, but it's pure. Number four, light doesn't stop until it hits a target. Light never stops. It keeps going forever, or for our understanding of that. And number five, in other words, it accomplishes its purpose, right? Number five, all energy in the universe is based on and from the energy of light. You ever thought about that? All the energy we enjoy and use on the earth has its roots in what? The sun. Where does the wind energy, the energy for the wind comes from the sun. The energy that warms the earth comes from the sun. The energy that fuels animals who die and become oil and gas comes from the sun. The energy that builds plants and trees that produce wood and coal come from the sun. Everything comes from the sun. The tides, the uh, hydrologic cycle of rain, all that energy is from the sun. So the source of all energy is what? Light. Even geothermal and subatomic energy is tied back to that tie of light to energy. Number six, any amount of light overcomes any power of darkness. You ever been in a cave and they turn the lights off? And you can strike a match and illuminate that whole cave. Just a dim candle can dispel all the darkness in a big cave. So light is never overcome by darkness. Any amount of light overcomes any amount of darkness. So next slide. What are some spiritual conclusions from that and from the scriptures, more importantly, that we read? Number one. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So he is completely glorious, radiant, holy, righteous. All things power, powerful and pure have their root in him. And that's spiritual or physical. Number two, God's light is life. I pointed that out repeatedly, the tie between light and life. Light comes to us through life. Life comes to us through light. That mystery, I can't explain, but it's a fact. God's light is pure. And because His light is pure, His gospel is pure. There's no perfection, no doubt, no error, no fallibility. We know that for God, certainly, but do we know that for His gospel, that His pure gospel is perfect? Do we know that his gospel is powerful enough to not just save us, but to sanctify us? The same gospel by which we are justified is the same gospel by which we grow and the same gospel by which we will one day be glorified. God's light never ceases to go forth until it accomplishes its purpose. God's light goes forth and, I, and I, I promise you, it will accomplish what God sent it out for. 
whether in the radiance of his glory or the glory of his gospel, that light will hit the target. Number five, God is the source of all light and therefore of all life. That's an obvious statement, but we just need to trust that. I, I realize in preparation, I, don't, I, I know that, I believe that, but I don't really trust that in the way I live. Number six, God has given us his light and will make us his lights. I want you to think about this. Um, Andrew read a powerful passage of scripture, and I thought about it when he was reading it. Ephesians chapter 1, in those opening verses, there's a phrase that's used three, three times, and that is, to the praise of his glory. And the first time it's used, it says, to the purpose of his will. And then it says, to the praise of his glory. So we were predestined to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glory. So what is the ultimate purpose of all things? What is God's ultimate purpose for everyone, for all things, for all time? What's the chief end of man? To glorify God. So if, you know, a lot of businesses and organizations now talk about managing by objective. In other words, what you do is based on what's your objective. So, and we see that certainly in successful athletic programs, is that if you want to achieve a goal, then you better develop a process that points you to that goal, right? So, our goal is what? To glorify God. That's the chief end of man. How do we glorify God? What? We let his light shine. It's as simple as that. What does Matthew 5.14 say? You are the light of the world. Now that sounds good. And I, maybe this doesn't condemn you, but I, I, I tell you it condemned me to think. I think about that little song we learned in kindergarten. This little light of mine, what? I'm going to let it shine. You know, what did somebody say? The best things we learn in life, we learn in kindergarten. That's a powerful statement. We may have a little light. Our light may not burn as brightly as Martin Luther's. It may not burn as brightly as John Calvin's. But our light is powerful if it's His light. Right? So, when God says, you are the light of the world, He's talking about like, what he said in Paul's epistle, you're children of the light. So, if we are the light of the world, then verse 6, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven, right? So, let your light shine before men. Not your light of self-esteem, but His light of humble submission to the gospel. Not your light of selfish preferences, but, your light, but His light of devotion and sacrifice to His kingdom and His purpose. If we do that, men will see them as His light. Men will see the glory of of God in that word of life that John talked about. And men will, if they see that we've heard it, that we've seen it, that we've touched it, that we've fellowshiped with it, that we have that joy, that we have that eternal life, which starts now, not when we die, then that will be attractive. Who isn't drawn more to light than the darkness? And I tell you, there is so much glitz and glitter in this world that looks like light that is darkness. And there's so many people so wrapped up in it that they think, I've got it. And what they've got is all darkness. And you know, the, 
the toughest thing about it is that the light of God runs contrary to the preferences of men. So, but let's wrap up. Back to the Reformation now. Another Latin phrase. I know y'all sick of Latin. In Ohatchee, we tried to learn Pig Latin, but I think that's a little different. Um, But a Latin phrase that came out of Reformation also is Ecclesia Semper Reformanda. Any Marines in here? What's the Marine Corps motto? Always faithful. So Semper means always. So Semperfi from Sola Fide, that F-I, is always faithful. So Ecclesia is church. So literally, it means the church must always be reformed or the church always reforming. The whole phrase originally was the church is reformed and always in need of being reformed according to the Word of God. The verb is passive. The church is not always reforming itself, but it's being reformed. So where's the reformation come from? God. It's not, we don't make ourselves better. God makes us better. God reforms us. God gives us the recovery of the true gospel by the Spirit of God through the Word of God. The reformers were not liberal or conservative. They were radical. They were devoted to return to the root. And that was reflected in that material cause of Scripture alone. Think of it this way. Corporate sanctification of the church, I believe, is directly comparable to personal or individual sanctification. We don't need to be newly reformed according to the culture and the time. You know, like if somebody says, oh, look, we've discovered this new way of doing things in church. We've discovered this new way of growing Christians. It's really neat. It's this 12-step program. If it's not biblical, it's not true. We don't need new reformation. We need the same historic gospel reformation that goes all the way back to Jesus. We're not trying to go back to John Calvin and Martin Luther. They were trying to go back to who? Jesus and the apostles. And we too use those great men and women and there were many women that suffered and sacrificed and worked and labored through the Reformation too. God used them to help point us back to Christ, back to the roots of the church. Personally, we don't arrive at some point, do we? We don't grow in sanctification and all of a sudden we get there. I've made it, Lord. This is where I was trying to get to. But we continue in sin, and therefore we continue in reformation. We continue in recovery of the original gospel. In that sense, reformation is not a destination, but what? A process. It's not somewhere we're getting to, but it's a process that we stay in, always being reformed. So in a sense, reformation, you could say, well, look, why didn't you just talk about sanctification? Isn't that the same thing? Yeah. It really is. But it was so dramatic in the church, and that name is stuck. Michael Horton says this in paragraph. Listen to this. I think it's very well put. It is not because the culture is always changing, and we need to, come, we need to be up with the times but because we are always in need of being reoriented to the word that stands over us, individually and collectively, that the church can never stand still. It must always be a listening church. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Personally and corporately, the church comes into being and is kept alive by hearing the pure gospel. The church is always on the receiving end of God's good gifts, of God's good gifts, as well as his correction. So remember the danger of thinking we've arrived somewhere as a Christian. And the danger of thinking we've arrived somewhere as a church. You ever thought about 
churches come and go. The church at Ephesus, gone. Church at Corinth, gone. Any church you want to name, it comes and it goes. The true church was buried in the Roman church for all the way through the Dark Ages. And the true church is buried in the Protestant church. You know, not all Protestants are Christian. And so it's not like Protestants are true Christians and Romans aren't. Uh, the church is what's important. And so to be sure that we test ourselves, examine ourselves to, be, to see whether we be in the faith, we likewise need to test ourselves, examine ourselves as a church to see whether we be in the faith, the historic faith that's rooted in the historic gospel. As Paul said, Philippians 2.12, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Next slide. I often ask people this question. So if you're Protestant, what are you protesting? Because, again, back to meanings of words, when we hear the word protest, what do we think of? It's usually not a positive image, is it? It's a negative image. Everything about protest is negative. I'm against that. And usually you're pretty ugly in the way you go about being against it. Well, that's not the original meaning. The original Latin word that we get Protestant from is the translation of the Greek word that we get the word martyr from. It means witness. And what kind of witness is a martyr? A witness unto death. So to protest something is to give public declaration of it is to publicly declare that with your whole life and being, even to the death, even to the loss of that life. So if we want to be true Protestants, we need to give ourselves to the gospel of Jesus Christ in our whole life. Our whole life, even to the death. So, it, it, Protestant means a lot of things in today's culture. But what it should mean for us is that we bear witness to the pure gospel and give our lives to it. The Reformation proves a lot of things. If you're not Roman Catholic, you can thank the Reformation. If you have a Bible that you can read, you can thank the Reformation. If you're an American or any of the New World, you can thank the Reformation. You can thank the Reformation for a lot of things. But what we, I think the most encouragement I get out of the Reformation is this. God is building His church. And the church was doing great. You know, everybody in America wants the church to be successful today. You know, let's be popular and successful and be a power to change America. Well, the early church burned brightly with the white-hot light of God's gospel, first three centuries. Then, a Roman emperor named Constantine had the bright idea that he would marry the church to the state. Who wouldn't want that? Like, what if the president said, hey, I want to adopt Christianity as the official religion of the United States of America? No longer will you be persecuted, ridiculed, made fun of. But that was the beginning of the end, right? That marriage of the church to the state was its downfall. And the church went into darkness for a thousand years. So what looks like success worldly can really be darkness. And what may seem as darkness is when the light of the gospel shines the brightest. Uh, you know that in your life. When does the light of Christian living shine the, dark, shine the brightest? Is against what? Trials, temptations, sufferings. And I hate to say this, but the church in America may have to go through hard times 
for the gospel to shine brighter. The gospel surely shined bright behind the iron curtain. And then America came and brought it Hollywood and dimmed its glory. Well, consider this. I'm going to wrap up. As we celebrate over the next month, I challenge you to do what I'm challenging myself. Examine our lives and our churches to see what darkness there may be in them. And let the Spirit of God take the Word of God and blast that darkness out by His light. And take that light and let it shine before others so that they may see it and glorify God who is in heaven. And I'm going to close with this, what I think is a neat illustration to think about. The hope of the light of God. You know, we may recover the ultimate light of God in glorification. Some people think that Adam and Eve were um, cloaked with light, even as Christ is now. Um, and that that's why they didn't realize they were naked until they sinned, because they were covered with light as a cloak. I don't know. I'm just telling you that's a theory some people have. So I don't know about then, but I can tell you about what's coming when we're glorified. Um, if you want to, you can look at the end of the book. We've been from Genesis 1. We'll go to Revelation 22. In Revelation 22, verse 4, they will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads and there will no longer be any night and they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them. The Lord God will illumine us and they will reign forever and forever. So, if you're His children of light, let your light shine. Amen.